You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. It's my honor to be able to share with you today in the remaining 50 minutes of our class period. I was told that a bell will ring to let you know that when you are dismissed. Okay? All right. Um, Our scripture for today is found in John chapter 8, verses 12 through 14. It'll be on the screen in a second. And it goes like this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, "I I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here we are. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from, and I know where I am going. The title of my message today is Unity in Christ, but before we dive into that, I thought it would be appropriate to start out with a golf joke. Because Pastor Wade is probably the best golfer I know, And Pastor Ryan is, well, he wants to be a good golfer. So here's the joke. So Jesus and Moses are approaching uh, the tee box of a par three hole. And this hole has a big pond in the front of it. And Jesus turns to Moses and says, "Uh, I saw Tiger Woods hit this with a three iron. And Moses says, yeah, but you're not Tiger Woods. Hit the three wood. Jesus says, no, no, no. Tiger can do it. I can do it. So Jesus gets up there takes a swing, hits a ball majestically high in the air that comes down right in the middle of the pond. Sploosh. Moses says, no problem, I'll go get it. So he walks to the pond. He parts the waters, of course. He goes in, gets the ball, goes back to the tee box, gives it to Jesus, and says, hit the three wood. Jesus says, no, 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 Tiger Woods do it. I can do it. So he gets up there. This time he digs his sandals into the grass, and he gets ready. He kind of checks the wind, hits the shot up in the air. It's majestic. It's going right towards the green and falls short right into the water. His shoulders slumped momentarily. And then he perks up and he trudges down to the pond, takes off his sandals, and starts walking on the water out to find his ball. Meanwhile, back in the tee box, two guys from the group behind come up to Moses and say, who does that guy think he is, Jesus Christ? Moses says, no, he thinks he's Tiger Woods. (laughs) Let's pray and go have donuts. What do you say? No, I share that with you because sometimes it feels like I need to have a different set of skills than those I have been blessed with, right? I'm sure you can all relate to that. And particularly as a leader of a Christian school, we're not all Dana Michaels, you know, we're not all amazing, incredible people. We, we have to work really hard, and being the leader of Village Christian School has been particularly hard the last couple of years. And so, for me, I have to really rely on uh, God to give me all those things that I need to have to be able to lead the school. But I love leading the school. I love the mission of Village Christian School. Uh, About 75 years or so ago, Pastor Phil Gibson started this church, and then soon after, he started Village Christian School as an outreach to the community. 
And we have always been a school whose mission it is to provide a Christ-centered education uh, filled with incredible faculty and staff who love Jesus Christ and who are going to share that with all the students who come to us in the hopes and the prayers that they will become Christians as well. And I can ensure you would agree with me that that mission has never been more important than it is today. But when you're in outreach to the community, guess what? You get the whole community who comes to your school. And here in Los Angeles, that means a really diverse group of, of families and a diverse group of people who make up the 1,150 students at our school. So this past year, we focused our spiritual emphasis on becoming unified in Christ. And I want to share some of those experiences with you this morning. But before I do, let's turn to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. Our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Thank you for Village Church and all the members here who have supported our school for 75 years and continue to do so today. And I pray that you would help us to share your love with the entire community that we meet. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So let me take you back for just a second to the summer of 2020. You probably have all tried to put that period of time out of your, out of your minds, forget about it, but let's just go back there for a second. It was the early days of COVID, and we were all sheltering in place here in Los Angeles. Fears about this mysterious unknown virus were paralyzing all of us. Our economy was literally shut down. Then, racial unrest exploded with the killing of George Floyd. And in our school, with many families of color, but also many families of police officers, there was deep unease. Our political discourse in our country was nasty, and our country was becoming more and more divided. And as a head of school, I was feeling bombarded with all of these challenges. Were we going to be able to go back to school in the fall? If not, how are people going to pay for a school they couldn't even go to? What about my 200 employees? What was I going to do with them? And as a leader, what should I say, if anything, to bring about racial healing? These were just some of the many questions swirling in my brain, and it wasn't just me. It was my colleagues around the country. So in a moment of levity, in the midst of all this craziness, I decided to write out a new job description. Have you ever done that? Have you ever written out a new job description for yourself? Kind of trying to describe what I thought I was being asked to do. So here's how it went. <laughs> Duties, number one, eradicate the virus. Easy, right? And the global pandemic, no problem. But make sure you do without any intrusive measures that might make people mad. Number two, another easy one, fix the economy so that people could afford our school. Number three, if duty number one does not work, invent a whole new way of doing education. And if duty number two doesn't work, make sure that edu education costs a lot less and allows me to pay my faculty a lot more. Number four, heal our nation's strife, racial strife. But like number one, don't make anyone mad while accomplishing it. And five, fix our divisive political system, again, without making anyone too upset. And number six, do your normal job. Well, how'd you think I did? <laughs> not that great. And I'm not even sure Tiger Woods could have pulled that one off. 
So fast forward to our present day, and here we are entering into the July 4th holiday. And I'm just going to ask you, how are we feeling about our nation right now and our unity in our nation? How about just here in Burbank? Well, as we all know, the 4th of July holiday celebrates our independence from the British Empire, a most American of all holidays. But before we were independent Americans, who were we? You don't need to be in Mr. Barron's AP U.S. history class to answer that. We were immigrants from Europe, slaves from Africa, imported workers from Asia. Here in Southern California way back then, we were Mexicans. We were from Latino heritage. And of course, the only true locals were Native Americans. All this to say, the very essence of who we are as a nation is a group of people from somewhere else. We all came to this melting pot in search of freedom and the promise of all being created equal. And at Village Christian School, we feel this truth very, very clearly and very closely as our student demographics are really diverse. Our current student body does not have one ethnic majority. We are Caucasians, Latinos, Koreans, Armenians, African Americans, Filipinos, Chinese, etc. So, seeking to heal the racial divide that our society had created was really important to us. Like this church, our village has always felt like a village. In fact, a school leader, a visiting school leader, a friend of mine, described us as a Midwestern town in the middle of Hollywood. However, like L.A., one of the most diverse cities in the world, our village had become diverse, and we wanted to ensure that every member felt loved and cared for, and the words that Paul shared with the believers in the town of Ephesus long ago would be true of our school. He said this in Ephesians 2.18, So you are no longer outsiders and strangers. You are citizens together with God's people. You are also members of God's family. But unity within diversity is a really sensitive topic to discuss, right? Have any of you ever been in a really awkward diversity training at your work? You kind of all just leave feeling bad about yourself, right? And so I didn't want that. I didn't want that for our faculty and staff. So I searched for about a year to find the right thing that I could bring to our community that would help us in this, in this issue. And I found it through God's grace from a friend of mine who runs a Christian school in San Diego. It was a book called The Third Option by author Reverend Miles McPherson. And you may have heard of Miles, a former NFL football player and the current pastor of the Rock Church in San Diego. And Miles wrote this about the third option. As human beings, we all have one important thing in common, our humanity. That's why it's so damaging to assume an us versus them perspective. This mindset and culture has led to division by causing us to focus on our differences. Instead of picking a side and pitting ourselves against one another, we can embrace a third option, honoring that which we have in common. Not me versus you, or us versus them. The third option is just us. And there are four profound points in the book that I want to share with you really quickly. By the way, if you want a great summer read, I recommend picking up the third option. First, a little bit about Miles. He grew up in Brooklyn, and his racial makeup is half black, a quarter Chinese, and a quarter white. He came to the school, and he shared with us he never felt black enough 
to be comfortable in the neighborhoods of Brooklyn that were black. And he never felt white enough to feel comfortable in the neighborhoods in Brooklyn that were white. Interestingly, his brother is Don McPherson. And Don McPherson was number two in the Heisman Trophy voting in 1987 after having a record year as the quarterback at Syracuse. You might remember him. Sadly, he didn't get drafted until the sixth round of the NFL draft the next year because back in 1987, black quarterbacks were not considered valuable. So all these things led led Miles to write this book. And his first point is to focus on our similarities, not our differences. Did you know that all humans share 99.6% of the same DNA? Yes. The reality that we have different shaped eyes, or some are short, or some are tall, or some of you have the burden of hair on top of your head, not on the bottom of your head. Those things are minuscule compared to all the things that we share in common. Our skin color is all a shade of brown. Have you ever truly met someone who was white? Yeah, maybe you have. They're called albinos. And it's because one of their genes does not produce melanin, which is the characteristic that creates color in our skin. The rest of us all have different levels of melanin in our skin that basically relates to where our ancestors grew up and how hot it was. Another similarity is if you survey people in every society about what they want for their children, they'll basically all say the same things. Health, happiness, a loving spouse, education, a successful career, get off their Xbox. I mean, it's kind of all the same thing around the world. And as Christ followers, we all know that we are God's children. As the psalmist wrote, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well you saw my unformed body and all the days were written for me in your book before one of them came to be. So the truth is, we are way more similar than we are different. So why do we focus so much on our differences? And that's his second point. He talks about the fact that we have an in-group versus out-group bias. We identify with people that we feel more similar to. Whatever that means, looks, language, culture, hometown, economic background, politics, favorite sports teams, etc. And those we don't feel similar to are in our out-group. So think for a moment, who are your out-groups? And if we're honest, we, we all have them right? You know, one of the most popular books in middle school is The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Anybody read that book? Yeah. It's so popular because kids really relate to the content of it. So the the Outsiders are made up of two groups, the Greasers and the Soches, two different groups of teenagers from different parts of the town, and they have their rivalry. And kids relate to it because it's just so core to our understanding of humanity. So, Miles created a little survey to talk about this I wanted you to consider with me for a moment. It'll be up on the screen. So, mentally check all the boxes that apply to you. I am more comfortable with those like me. I am more inclined to spend time socially with those like me. I am more patient with those like me. I give the benefit of the doubt quicker to those like me. I express more grace when mistakes are made by those like me. It's easier to communicate with those like me like me. 
I assume that I will get along easier with those like me. I am more willing to go out of my way to help those like me. I possess more positive assumptions about those like me. Right? Most of us would check those boxes. It's, it's very natural. But sadly, the opposite can occur for those who are not like us or we do not feel similar to. And Miles has a brilliant point on this, and I don't want you to miss this. He challenges us that the most effective way to leverage in-group bias, this idea that we're more comfortable with those similar to us, is, and, and he doesn't say deny it, he says use it, is to expand our in-group. When you take the time to identify similarities between you and people you once perceived as different, those of your out-group shift to become part of your in-group. Then it's going to be much easier to love and relate to them as someone who is, quote-unquote, like you. The third point is this. Miles says, as much as we try to bring people into our in-group, we all have what he calls his blind spots. He defines racial blind spots as simply not knowing what you don't know. It's the gap between the intent of what you do and say and the actual impact of what you do or say. One example for me is driving behind someone on the freeway who's going too slow. And if I happen to go around them, I see that they're Latino or Asian, my mind immediately goes to that horrible stereotype, which is crazy because the slowest driver I ever have known was my favorite uncle, who was Scottish. But this is part of our blind spots. And this comes to the fore when we consider the very difficult question, how would you answer if someone asked you, are you racist? Now, most of us would say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not racist. But Miles says the answer isn't actually that simple. While you might not overtly be racist toward others, each one of us has blind spots that keeps us from treating others with honor and respect that they deserve. After all, a person can be racially offensive without necessarily being a racist. To fully embrace another person's humanity, we have to identify and overcome our blind spots. One way to do this is to ask someone of a younger generation to hold you accountable for the things that you say and do. We all know that the generation above us, our parents, our grandparents, weren't as sensitive racially with their words and their language as we are. And I can also tell you that we're not as sensitive as the folks below us, right? And so this is a great way to hold yourself accountable. My kids are great at helping me do that. Like, Dad, you can't say that. It's a good thing that they told me that. The final point is this. Miles encourages us to walk in another's shoes. One way to get a small taste of what it feels like to be a part of an ethnic outgroup is to take the walk-in-my-shoes field trip. To do so, place yourself in an environment where you're the only person of your ethnicity. Feel free to do this with someone you know who's from a different ethnic group than you. Have you ever experienced this? Being the only one in your ethnic group in a setting can be a bit unnerving, but you develop a whole new appreciation for what it feels like to be an outgroup. Right here in Burbank, you can go down to the Armenian Orthodox Church on Glen Oaks Boulevard. If you walk in there, you will feel like you went back in time 500 years. It's amazing. And unless you speak Armenian and understand the liturgy, you're going to feel very much like an outsider. At least I did. Now, speaking of Armenia, I just returned from a trip to Armenia. It was my first time to go to that country. 
And it was absolutely fascinating. But as a non-Armenian speaker, I felt a little like an outsider. Now, a little bit about my background. I grew up as half Armenian in Glendale, which has the largest Armenian population in the world outside of the capital of Armenia. But I grew up before the recent group of immigrants had moved into the city. And so because I didn't speak Armenian, I didn't really understand the culture. When I was with a group of Armenians, I never really felt like I fit in. And then when I was with a group of non-Armenians and they were being critical of Armenians, I, I would cringe, you know, kind of like Miles, how he felt. And so for me, going to Armenia was really powerful. It was transformative. It was kind of like a pilgrimage of sorts. I learned about the country, my culture, their proud heritage as the first Christian nation in the world. And I mourned for the first time my great-grandfather's death during the, the Armenian Genocide. We also visited historic monasteries, cathedrals dating back to the 3rd century. I was overwhelmed. You can see those stairs going down and me standing in the pit on the screen behind me. That was the pit where Gregory the Illuminator was imprisoned for 13 years before being released and converting the king of Armenia to Christianity in 305 A.D. It was such a visceral link to the country's pride in being the first Christian nation. And then behind me on that screen, you can see Mount Ararat, which is the mountain that towers above the country, which is where Noah's Ark came to rest, if you read Genesis uh, chapter 8, verse 4. And it gave me a new appreciation for the love Armenians have for their culture and their land. And then I was told that that beautiful mountain, which you can see from all parts of that small country, is no longer part of Armenia. It was taken away by Turkey after World War I when Turkey and the Soviet Union kind of carved up their country. And so I can appreciate more when the Armenians here in Glendale see them driving around or in Burbank with signs and flags on the back of their car saying, we want to save the region of Artsakh, which is a region full of Armenians that's been taken over by the Azerbaijanis in the last couple of years. I get that now because I see how much of their country has been taken from them. Finally, I visited the memorials from the originator of the Armenian language and learned how the creation of their own alphabet, in addition to their Christian faith, was the glue that helped bind this country and its people together after centuries after centuries of occupation by foreign empires. So when our Armenian parents at our school wanted their kids to learn the Armenian language, and they agreed to find a teacher and to pay for the classes in addition to tuition, now I get it. I know why. I know why it's so important to them to hang on to that. So understanding Armenian parents has become very important to us as a school because we've had an influx of families over the past couple of years. And I'm sure if you live or work here in Burbank, you understand that getting to know Armenians is important for you too because you might consider them right now an outgroup. But I hope you can take from my trip that there's a lot of similarities with all of us. The importance of their faith, their family, their love of America, and their homeland is really important to them. Which is probably more similar to you than you might have once previously thought. So in thinking about this idea of walking in another person's shoes, I thought about Jesus coming to earth and literally walking in our shoes. The shoes of a mortal man. And isn't he the perfect example of what Miles is encouraging us to do? 
John wrote in his gospel, the, world, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I always love the Eugene Peterson version of this in the message. He wrote that the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It seems to me that God decided to show us once and for all that he really understands us by coming to live with us as a human. He wanted to be part of our in-group. And the one thing Jesus experienced while here on earth was discrimination because he was someone else's out-group. He gets it. Our experience, he completely understands. He was criticized by the religious leaders of his time for hanging out with the wrong crowd, the tax collectors, the sinners. He got criticized for talking with people of another race and gender, the Samaritan woman at the well. And did you know that he even got criticized for not being religious enough? The religious leaders of his time wanted to make him an outsider. And in fact, he even got criticized by one of his own disciples, Nathaniel, for being from a wrong part of town. Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? So what was his response to all of this? And how does that response help us to respond? Well, the scripture we read at the beginning of, the, of the, my talk was from John chapter 8. And in that section of scripture, Jesus is again being criticized. The religious leaders are saying, what you're saying is not valid because you are a nobody, an outsider. Jesus replied, these claims are valid even though I make them about myself. For I know where I came from and where I am going. I know where I came from and where I am going. I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus was fully self-aware. He knew where he came from. He's God's son, sent from heaven to earth. He came from God, not Nazareth or Bethlehem. And he knows where he's going, back to his Father in heaven. And friends, this good news is true for us as well. If we truly know where we came from, from God, because we are his sons and daughters, his creations, his masterpieces, not from Burbank or China or Mexico or Africa or Armenia, but from God, all of us from God, then there is no wrong side of the tracks. There are no differences that divide us. Instead, we are by birth united together as brothers and sisters in Christ, similar in the most important of ways. And then the great news of the Bible is that we can all know where we are going to be with God in heaven. All of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ will be together in heaven with God. This morning, are you wondering what your future holds? Where you're going? The great news is that you can have confidence in Christ's redeeming power, that you can be with him in heaven for all of eternity. And do you think it's going to matter what color our skin is or what gender we are or where we were born when we get to heaven? Of course not. So I invite you this morning to, like Jesus, know where you came from and where you are going. Jesus, who one who loves us just exactly for who we are, invites us to know where we came from and where we're going. So put your faith in him. And in doing so, 
See everyone for who they are, not their differences, but their similarities, especially that they are your brother and sister in Christ. Jesus wants to be in our in-group, and I pray that you will let him. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.